Well, we're starting a new series today that is going to take us all of 2022 complete. Okay, we're going to be working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter, or at least the first letter we have recorded to Timothy. And I am, I'm very excited about this. We're, we're going to take the whole year to study this book, but we are going to take some breaks along the way to have some mini-series, but those are even going to branch off of 1 Timothy. So everything's going to kind of tie all in together, and I think it's going to be awesome. I also think it's a little scary. And the reason I think it's a little scary is, is if you've ever read 1 Timothy, you know there's some difficult stuff in this book. There are some challenging things, and they're right there in the text, and so we can't just go around them. We're going to have to talk about them. So it's a good thing. I guarantee you, you are going to have some incredible lunch conversations this year after the services, okay? We're going to talk about some really, really good stuff. We're going to dive into it today. But just to let you know, one of the mini-series that we are going to do is a rerun. Updated, new information, new, new content, but it's going to be the same basic stuff, and that is the Undivided series. And so some of you know, if you've been here for a while, not, not all of you have been. Some of you have come within the last couple of years. But my first year here, we did a series called the Undivided Series about the buckets of belief. And as the pastors were all gathering together and talking about and praying about the messages for the next year, this one kept coming back up as we, we need to, we have a sense that we need to get back into this. And so we're going to do that, and we're going to expand it a little bit and talk about how that applies to different areas of our lives. But before I go any further, I want to let you know that if English is not your first language, and it would be helpful for you to read along with today's message in another language, you can do that in over 60 different languages. Just go to efree.org slash translate on your mobile device, click a link, and you can choose your language of choice, and, and that may be helpful to you. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we recommend the YouVersion Bible app. The verses for today are preloaded. If you go to events and First Free Church, you'll find not only the verses for today that we're going to be covering, but also our announcements are there as well in case that is helpful for you. Our text today is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And this is a wonderful introduction to Paul's letter. And so it makes a beautiful introduction to our series. The things we talk about today are going to set us up, hopefully, for the rest of the year and some important concepts that we need to understand. I, I think you'll, you'll realize what I mean by that as we dive into it. But I have a question for you that I think will sort of kick this off the right way and help us to really appreciate 1 Timothy for what it is. Here's the question. If you could write a letter to any biblical figure and ask them a series of questions, knowing they would respond, what would you ask, who would you ask, and why? So I actually want to hear from you on this. I want to know who, and I know somebody's going to pick Jesus. Let's get that out of the way. That's a fine answer. That's good. But who would you choose? Who would be your biblical figure that you would want to write a question to and get some answers from? Who's got one for me? Jeremiah. We got Paul, Jeremiah. Why? Why Paul? Because he, so he wrote so many books. He's got a lot of wisdom. Why Jeremiah? Forty years without a follower. And how did he, how did he last that long? Okay, how did he do it? What else? What biblical figure would you want to write a, a list of questions to and have them answer? Deborah. Why Deborah? <laughs> well, if you're going to say a name. <laughs> she, was a wise, woman. 
She was a wise, strong woman. What was it like to be a leader in Israel at that time? Yeah, that's good. Let me go over to this side because you guys have, oh, I heard Mary. Yes, and why Mary? She's got a lot of splaining to do. She did back then too. <laughs> Stuff started showing and people said the exact same thing. Someone in the early service said Mary and their reason was they want to know, their question is, did God give her a pass on labor pains? <laughs> it's a fair question. What else? Biblical figure that you would like to write a list of questions to and why? John, why? Why he thought Jesus loved him? Yeah, what was so special there? The disciple who Jesus loved, like he didn't love the other guys. That's a good question. Anybody else? Biblical figure you would love to ask some questions to? Daniel. Why Daniel? Uh huh. Yeah. And he had to tell it to us in, in metals and periodic elements. Like, what's up with that? Can't you be a little more clear? <laughs> yes, I'd love to ask Daniel some questions. Maybe one more. Who else? A biblical figure that you wish you could ask questions of? I know. Who's that? Judah? Judas. Judas. And why Judas? Yeah, yeah, there you go. What were you thinking if you didn't hear that in case? The reason I want you to be thinking about this is because I think it will help you to understand Paul's letter to Timothy. Because what's happened here is that Timothy has actually sent a letter to Paul with a list of questions, just like we just talked about. Paul was Timothy's answer to that question. Who could I get some information from? Who can I get some advice from? Who can I ask these questions to? And Paul was the guy. And so Timothy sent a letter to Paul that was full of questions. Paul didn't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to send a bunch of random knowledge to Timothy. This is in response to Timothy asking him for advice. Timothy was leading a large church, we'll see. And he had some difficult people to deal with in that church. And so he's asking for advice from his mentor to help him understand this. What we are getting in 1 Timothy is a Q&A, question and answer. Only we're just getting the A, the answer part. That's all we're getting. Now, admittedly, that's the better part, right? This would not be nearly as helpful if all that was preserved for us was Timothy's questions and no answers. So I'm thankful that we have Paul's answers that are preserved for us. But this is really important to understand as we dive into the study of 1 Timothy because Paul is going to give lots of random truth bombs, He's going to give all this kind of knowledge that may seem disjointed and like, how does this fit together and why didn't he give more information? But it's because he's responding to Timothy's questions. He's not answering an email where he can just click reply and you can always scroll down and see the original. It doesn't work that way. Paul is probably orating his answers to a scribe who is writing this down in a letter form who's going to then send this to Timothy. So you can imagine Paul sitting there with Timothy's letter, reading a section of it, and then stopping to pray and asking God, how do you want me to respond to this? This is a tricky one. Lord, what is your answer to this? And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul with the answers to these questions, and then he probably gave them to someone verbally who wrote them down word for word and then sent this off. And so that is the process that Paul went through. He didn't need to rewrite the answers because he's writing to the guy that asked the questions. He didn't re need to rewrite the questions, that is. 
He's writing back to the guy who asked the question, so why waste the ink? So all we have is the, the half of this dialogue, this conversation. And sometimes, honestly, it feels a little clunky. It feels a little confusing. And today it is certainly controversial. But it's important to understand why that is. It's because we're getting one half of this Q and A. Now to start this study in the right way, I'm going to ask all of us to pray together. But I want us to pray for three very specific things. The three things are, first of all, that God would help us to understand his word. As we take the journey through 1 Timothy together over the next year, we want to understand it, right? We want to understand what it means. The next step is we want to ask God to help us to apply his word correctly in our individual lives and in our church. Because 1 Timothy has a lot to do with how churches function, how they operate, how you and I interact with each other, how leadership works. That's a lot of 1 Timothy. And so we want God's wisdom in applying this to our lives and to his church. And the last thing we need to pray for is we need to pray for a spirit of love and unity as we go through this. Because we will have disagreements. There's no way around that. 1 Timothy has too much controversial stuff. There will be disagreements along the way. Will we have a spirit of love and unity as we talk about those things together? That is something we can pray for. And let's all pray right now, if you would. Lord, as we open your word today, I ask for you to teach us. Today and through the rest of the year, Lord, teach us to understand what you were communicating to these people 2,000 years ago through your servant, Paul, that Timothy would take and and read and, and absorb and then distribute to the other leaders in the church so that they could all benefit from this wisdom. And Lord, help us to apply it well. Help us to understand the ways in which this should impact our lives and the ways in which this should impact our church. But above all, Lord, help us to have the unity and the love that you want for your body. We know that there will be things we will disagree on. We are humans. We have opinions. We each have our own minds and different perspectives and backgrounds and experiences and sets of facts that we draw from. And so, Lord, I pray for a spirit of unity to just cover this church this year. As we talk through some difficult issues that we need to talk about, that your word talks about, Lord, help us to have a love for each other that goes beyond any disagreements we may have. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. I'm just gonna dive right in with verse one, and I'm gonna explain some background and context as we go through this. So if you've got your Bibles handy or you've got version open or whatever it is or follow along on the screens, 1 Timothy chapter one, verse one says this. This letter is from Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus who gives us hope. Now most of you are probably familiar with this guy, Paul, but some of you may not be, so here's a refresher just in case. Paul lives 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and he is a Jewish religious leader. He's a very zealous Jewish religious leader, a particular brand of Judaism that he promotes. I'll tell you about that in a minute. He has two names. One name is Paul. That is his Roman name, but he also has a Jewish name, and that is Saul. And this was pretty common 
back then. It's still common today in certain parts of the world to have two names. If you go to Thailand, for instance, you will meet people who have a Thai name, which you will probably have a difficult time pronouncing, and you will, they will have an English name. And sometimes that English name is not what you would expect. Sometimes it's a word like sky or earth or things like that. And so they have two names because it's much easier to communicate that way. So when you meet people for the first time and they know that you are an American and they might give you their English name, and uh, then you have to ask, well, what is your, your Thai name? This is the case with Paul. He had these two names. He goes by Saul when he's in Jerusalem because he's dealing mostly with Jewish people. That is his Jewish name, just like King Saul. Now, Saul is zealous for advancing Judaism, but a particular type of Judaism, which is Pharaoh. Uh, hold on. Wrong spelling. There we go. I cannot spell this wrong. Pharisaic. There we go. Judaism. This is what he is all about. And the Pharisees, you have to understand, their perspective was, we are going to add more laws to God's laws to make sure people never break God's laws. And so we're going to take laws that were designed for the priests and the Levites, and we're actually going to make those applicable to everybody, and we're going to add some more things on top of that to make sure no one breaks those laws. It's the same principle that a lot of us use with our kids, right? We don't want our kids to go stick their fingers in the outlet, so we say, don't even go over by the wall, right? And so we make a law that isn't the actual law. That's not the thing we really care about to make sure they never cross the boundary of the thing we actually care about because something bad's going to happen. And that's not a terrible perspective, right? That's not a horrible thing. It, it devolved into a bad thing for the Pharisees, but that's where they started from is saying, hey, we want to make sure that God never has a reason to judge us again. And so we're going to make all these extra laws, and that's where you get Pharisees and that kind of Pharisaical legalism. Saul is one of the most aggressive Pharisees. He's incredibly devoted. And that's an important word to remember for later. Paul is very, very devoted to the cause of advancing Judaism to the point where he persecutes and even kills people who are perceived as a threat to Judaism and Pharisaical Judaism. And so the biggest perceived threat at this time is a group of people who are followers of something called the way. Followers of the way to Saul are this dangerous group that just needs to be eradicated, get rid of it. And so he finds them and he persecutes them and eventually these followers of the way start to be called Christians. Originally, it's an insult. It means little Christ or wannabe Christ, but it kind of makes sense, so it sticks and that's what these people start to be called is Christians. One day as Saul is heading to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and they have a conversation and he recognizes, Paul recognizes that this is God and this is Jesus. And so Jesus is Lord. And he calls him that. And he believes in him. And in an incredible act of irony, God chooses to take Saul, who was the biggest persecutor of the followers of Jesus, and turn him into one of his best messengers, a missionary, an apostle, a sent one who's going to go deliver the message of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, but not just to the non-Jewish people. He's going to actually expand the reach far beyond to reach the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. And so Paul is going to become this messenger, this missionary to the Gentiles. Only instead of coercing them with violence and persecution, he's going to use teaching and service to win them over, not trying to force them to agree with his beliefs, but trying to share the truth with them so that they might hear and understand and believe. Along the way, as he's traveling around, he meets this young guy, Timothy. He's already a follower of Jesus, but he needs to be mentored. 
And so Timothy joins Paul's team. Now you might think that Paul, he's this loner guy traveling around by himself. We always call him Paul's missionary journeys. But the truth is, he always had a posse with him. He always had a group of people that was going with him, helping him, a team, helping to build these churches. And so Timothy joins that team with Paul. But at the time of this letter, obviously they're not together because Paul's writing to him. And in the next couple of verses, we're going to find out why. In verse 2, Paul says, I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. This is a, a very normal greeting, but it's a very warm greeting, my son in the faith. And the reason this is important to understand is because as we go through this letter, you're going to find some very direct and blunt instruction given to Timothy. And in fact, you, you might even call it curt. It's like, wow, Paul is really laying into this guy. Tell him to do this, do this, do this. But he's not trying to micromanage him. He's not trying to control him. He's just trying to save some letters, but he tells him right up front, hey, you're my son in the faith. And I want grace and mercy and peace for you. In other words, this is warm. This is familial, right? This is a family relationship here. This is mentoring and guidance. So read the rest of the letter in that tone. But they're not together right now. And here's why. Paul says, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. We're gonna get into that teaching that's contrary to the truth in a little bit. But first, let's talk about Ephesus, the church in Ephesus that Timothy was supposed to help lead. What was it like? Well, it was a large, multi-site, multi-community church. There's a myth that the early New Testament churches were all these little small ones and that that's the closest thing to the New Testament church and nothing could be further from the truth. That may have been true for about two days, and then it just exploded. It took off. Uh, there were thousands of people, in some cases in a single day, joining the, this new movement called The Way. And these churches grew to be quite large. The church in Jerusalem and Philippi and Antioch and Crete and Ephesus and Philadelphia, these were good-sized churches, some of them much bigger than ours. And so these were large, large churches they grew to some of them several thousand people, adding new people every single day. They met in homes for their group times and in larger gatherings to worship together. The church in Jerusalem, for instance, met on the temple steps for corporate worship time and then in individual homes for the Lord's Supper and other teaching. In these cities, they didn't create hundreds of little churches that were all independent and unique from each other. They all considered themselves to be part of one big church. That was, that was what they... It wasn't the church on such and such a corner or First Church of the Way over here, it was, we're the church in Jerusalem. We're the church in Crete. We're the church in Philadelphia. And they had centralized leadership that oversaw them and they viewed themselves as part of the larger church. When Paul's writing to Titus in Crete, he says, hey, I want you to take this information after you read it and I want you to go to each of the individual communities and share this with them. So Titus had authority over all these different communities. They all viewed themselves as being the church in Crete, but they met in different places. The, there was one big community and then other little communities inside of a regional multi-site church. Now, the only thing missing was the technology to live stream Paul and Timothy and Titus' messages to all these different communities. So they had to go in person. They had to send letters. They had to travel around. It was far less efficient, but that's what they had to do. But they didn't see themselves as separated and isolated. 
it may surprise you to learn that the closest picture of the New Testament church today is a large, multi-site, multi-community church with a thriving groups ministry. That is the closest thing to the New Testament church. Now, small churches are wonderful. I've spent most of my life in small churches, very small churches. And they're very needed in many communities. But here's the thing. A small church that becomes isolated from other believers in the area and other communities of believers is very different from what the New Testament church looked like. They may think they're being like the New Testament church, but that is not how they functioned. They viewed themselves as a much larger entity. You need to understand that because that helps you to have perspective on what Timothy is dealing with. Timothy is not asking for advice on how to handle 50 people that meet in his home. He's asking for advice on how to handle a large, complex organization with layers and layers of leadership that he is finding difficulty in, that he has been tasked with confronting some people who are not doing what they're supposed to do. This is a complex issue that he's asking for Paul's guidance on in a large church. Now, Paul tells us what some of the things these people were doing and why it was a problem. Here's what he says in verse 4. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. I want to explain to you what this means. This phrase here, waste their time. The word there literally is devoted. That's what the word means. It means to be devoted to, to think about it a lot. Another way this same word gets translated in the Bible is addicted. See, this is important because Paul's concern was not with people who had a casual fascination with something. This is not people who just kind of talk about it every now and then and they look it up online and they check it on Wikipedia. These are people who are pretty much obsessed with it. They are, they are devoted to these conversations. This is something that is taking up a lot of their time. Now, you may have encountered people like this in the church. At times, you may have been guilty of something like this. People that become so obsessed with things that don't produce a lot of value, that aren't helping people live a life of faith in God, but they take up all of their time and it distracts them from the most important things that God wants them to be about. Their time gets sucked up by meaningless conversations. Meaningless conversations could also be translated fruitless. In other words, there's no fruit to it. There's no value. There's nothing that you can walk away from that and go, well, I am a better Christian because I had that argument. I feel like I am built up and encouraged because this person shared all about their theories with me. But Paul's not saying it's wrong to talk about these things. He's saying it's the extent that these people become devoted to it and obsessed with it where it takes up their time away from more important things. We don't know exactly what the myths and spiritual pedigrees referred to. We've got some good ideas. There are some clues in the text. There are some clues outside of the text. There are theories about it. But we don't really need to know exactly what this was referring to. This teaches us an important principle about how to interpret and apply the Bible. See, Paul does this often. He will give a biblical principle and then he will share cultural examples. I know that seems really simple, 
but it can actually be very profound and you need to learn to tell the difference in the scriptures between what is the biblical principle and what are the cultural examples. Let me share with you what the principle is here and then I'm gonna talk more about this process of interpretation. The biblical principle Paul is getting at is don't become devoted to something that leads to endless speculations. Waste your time, doesn't help you live a life of faith in God. This practical cultural application here are the myths and spiritual pedigrees, or some versions say genealogies. That's what they're spending their time on. Now here's why this is so important to understand this concept. Some people try to dismiss 1 Timothy principles because Paul includes cultural examples. Some people look at the cultural examples in 1 Timothy and see them as inseparable from the biblical principles that he is sharing, God's principles, God's truth, and they say, well, maybe we just need to write off 1 Timothy or at least the chunks we don't like because those are cultural examples there. Unless you understand this process of biblical interpretation and study and application, it's very difficult to know which parts do we keep and which parts do we throw out. Because if cultural examples invalidate the principle, then we can apply that to all kinds of stuff in the Bible. And the truth is, that's just not how good Bible study and application works. That's not how it works at all. The job of every Christian is to read the Bible and try to understand its meaning to its original audience. And that takes some research, some study. And then to bridge that context from the old into the new today and carry the principle with it and apply it appropriately in our culture. And in case that didn't make sense, let me show you what that looks like. You have the biblical principle, and you have the old cultural examples. What our job is, is to bring the principle forward. That has not changed. That is not different today. It's the same principle today as it was back then. But we have to apply new cultural examples, new relevant application. Because our day looks different today than their day did 2,000 years ago. We live a little bit differently than they did. Life looks different now. We have cars. We have the internet. We have smartphones. It's crazy that this thing didn't exist 20 years ago. When I tell my son that we didn't used to have these, he's like, how did you live? Like, well, how did you do all this stuff? Like, everything we do is on the smartphone. We, no, we didn't have that. In fact, we had to type on numbers and enter the number multiple times just to get a letter. It was annoying. I love the technology we have, but they didn't have that 2,000 years ago. They didn't have cars, they didn't have internet, they didn't have TV shows, they didn't have movies, they didn't have all these things that we have today. And here's, here's the thing you have to get, here's the thing you have to understand. The only way that God's word applies to any of those things is this process right here. The only way it applies, because you will not find a verse about cell phones but you will find principles with cultural application for them that if you carry forward the principle, you can apply that to cell phones. Does that make sense? I know this seems overly simplistic, but it is something that has been missed by many people. When they look at God's word and they, don't, they find something they don't like and they say, well, because there's a cultural example, I'm now going to throw out the principle that's attached to it. And it does not work that way. When you understand this process 
of biblical application, then you know that this is true. Paul's cultural examples do not invalidate his principles for today. Now, yes, you have to study carefully to determine what is cultural example and what is principle, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next year. But you need to understand this concept. I want to give you an example. 2 Corinthians 13 says, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. Simple question. How many of you kissed your friends when you showed up to church today? Not one hand. We got one. Okay, very good. You are the only saved person in this room. You know, if you're in Latin America culture, this makes perfect sense. But here, this doesn't make sense, right? It's a cultural example. Are we all living in sin because we are not kissing each other? Paul says you're supposed to kiss each other. When you greet each other, that's the way that you encourage and show love. And I could see some people pointing to this verse and saying, the way Paul says to encourage and show love is by kissing. So we need to, when you walk in the door next Sunday, our greeters are going to walk up to every single person. Right on the lips. No, of course not. It's a cultural example, but the principle is true. What is the principle? Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. Find the ways to do the principle in your culture today. The principle is still true, even though there are cultural examples. Hold on to that concept because you're going to need it again this year, throughout the year. Paul loves to give relevant practical examples. As good teachers do, the job of every preacher is to take biblical principle and find ways that it applies in your life that may not apply to the lives of the people in the church down the street. That's okay. That doesn't mean that we don't continue to teach the principle. So here's the principle again. We're gonna dive into this a little bit. Don't become devoted to something that leads to endless speculations, wastes your time, and doesn't help you live a life of faith in God. Now, I wanna talk about this idea of being devoted. And I'm gonna do this by showing you a little something I created this week called the spectrum of interest. Patent pending. I'm kidding, I just made it up. The spectrum goes from, I don't care about this thing, whatever it is, whatever the topic is, I don't care about it, to, yeah, that's somewhat interesting. I could learn a little bit about that, to tell me more. I might be willing to, uh, oh, it's not, uh, not drawn for me now. There we go. I might be willing to, uh, you know, Google that, to, I will stay up late researching Wikipedia on that. That's very interesting to me. To, I'm gonna talk about that with other people. That's, that's really interesting. Too. I'm going to think about that a lot, a whole lot, all the way down to I'm talking about this a lot. I am sharing this with other people, asking them. We're diving into this together. This is a big deal to me. It's a spectrum of interest from I don't care to I'm talking about it all the time. Now, let's conduct a little focus group experiment, if you would. And play along, please. This is not the time where we're trying to find out what your answers are or anything like that. No one's recording and judging what you say but we're just gonna have some fun with it. I'm gonna give you some topics and I want you to tell me where it fits for you on your spectrum of interest. In other words, how interested are you in these topics? And we're gonna do this like this. If you don't care about something, just put up a fist. I don't care. Doesn't make a difference to me at all. If you're somewhat interested in that topic, 
One finger, preferably this one. (laughs) If you care a little bit more about it and you'd research it a little bit, two fingers. If you'd stay up late researching it, three fingers. Maybe you'd talk about this with other people. That's four fingers. I'll do everything above and then also I'm going to talk about it, four fingers. I'm thinking about this a lot. That's five fingers. And I'm talking about this a lot with a lot of people. That is two hands, like, woo, jazz hands. I am into that, okay? You you with me? Okay, play along. This may be fun. I'm not going to guarantee anything. Here's the first one. I, I don't know why I started with this one. Tell me how you feel about this. How interested are you in this topic? The superiority of cats or dogs? Okay. Somebody made up a new one. Two fists. I really don't care. Here's one for you. The type of car you should buy. How interesting is that to you? I don't care. I research that a lot. I talk about that a lot with a lot of people. Okay, let me give you a different one. Cardinals baseball. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting, interesting, okay. Boy, there's a surprising amount of fists out there for St. Louis. You must be from Chicago. Blues hockey. Yeah, right now, blues hockey is like this, you know? And then in a few months, that'll be the Cardinals thing. All right, this is where things start to get real. Your multi-level marketing business. Okay. This is just a a public service for everybody. The upcoming presidential election. That gets interesting. Interesting. Let's do a theological one. Calvinism and Arminianism. Some of you are, yeah, we'll talk about that. I'm interested in that. Or I don't care. I love it when the spouses are totally different. It's awesome. I know you guys have great conversations. How about the origin of the universe, earth and people? How do you feel? How interested are you in that? Okay. All right. Here's a relevant one right now. Premillennial versus glorious return of Jesus. It's like, yeah, I want to know more about that. I want to research that. I'll stay up late researching that. I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm thinking about it all the time. Some of you are just like, I'll find out when I get there. <laughs> Makes no difference to my life now whatsoever. I hear you. Um, what about your kids? Yeah. Yeah. What about your health? (laughs) All right. How about this one? Sharing Jesus with people who don't know him. Ooh. That can be a convicting one, right? Because if you just look at my life, you know, it's like, oh, maybe it looks like I don't care, but I know I should care, so I'll say three. That's a convicting one, right? Are we, are we frequently talking about Jesus with other people or are we kind of somewhat interested in it? What about this one? Teaching your children biblical principles. Like, I'm all into that. We talk about it all the time. 
Or some of us are like, yeah, I'd like to, and I want to learn more about that, but I'm more teaching them how to navigate Netflix right now. The reason I'm doing this is not to comment on these different issues, all right? What I'm trying to show you is that we all put these things at different points on the spectrum of interest for us. They appear in different places, and we could have done this for thousands of topics and all had different answers on all of these things. We're all over the map here. But isn't it true that we can become so obsessed with something that it pulls us away and distracts us from things that matter a lot more? See, what Paul wanted believers to focus on are the things that help them live a life of faith in God. He doesn't want them to become devoted to or addicted to myths or theories or speculations. He's saying, don't get caught up wasting hours and hours on meaningless, fruitless things instead of doing the things God really wants you to do. Let me put it this way, succinctly. Is there something you have made a huge priority in your life that isn't a priority for God? Is there anything that you have made a big priority in your life that just isn't a priority for God? Now, by the way, what Paul is asking Timothy to do here is not an easy thing. This is not going to be fun for him. Timothy, go confront the people in the church, and many of them are church leaders. The people who are leading people away from a life of faith in God, go confront them. This is not an easy thing. This is not a send a text. This is a sit down. This is a travel to go visit with them in their village, in their area, in their outskirts part. This is a go physically meet with them and confront them on this. And do you think they all took that well? I'm going to go ahead and guess that some of them did not respond with grace and humility to Timothy's confrontation. In fact, I imagine that some of them proceeded to spread rumors about Timothy after the confrontations. I'll bet they said things like, he's being too controlling. He's, he doesn't support my ministry. I'll bet that was a very difficult and challenging thing for Timothy to do. Now, what Paul wants here is not for Timothy to go kick all these people out of the church. What he wants is very different from that. We do know that later Paul says that he actually did kick a couple of people out of the church because they would not hear the confrontation and respond to it with repentance and, and the correct response. So he's willing to go there, but that's not what he wants. That's not his primary objective. And we know that because he tells us what his main objective is in the next verse, in verse five. He says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. See, you could read through this letter and walk away thinking that Paul's primary concern and the purpose of his instruction is right belief. That's called orthodoxy. Or you might walk away with the impression that his primary purpose of instruction is right practice or right behavior. That's called orthopraxy, having the right practices, doing the right things. And those are important, but Paul does not treat that as the main purpose of his instruction. He does not want his main purpose to get lost in all of the details he's about to cover. All of the stuff that we are going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on, Paul does not want us to dive into that without understanding his main purpose. And his main purpose is that believers should be filled with love that comes from a pure heart. Have a clear conscience 
Or you could translate this, upright motives. Pure, right, good motives for your actions and having a genuine faith. Now as it happens, the people that Paul wants Timothy to confront do not have any of these characteristics anymore. They used to, but they don't anymore because Paul says some people have missed this point. They have turned away from these things and they spend their time in meaningless discussions. The difficult people in the church engaged in these meaningless discussions and leading others into them did not show love or the right motives and they did not act from faith, a sincere, genuine faith. What happens when you have a passion for orthodoxy? That's the right belief, believing the right things. But you do not have a priority of love to go with that. You get the thought police. People who make it their mission to fight and gossip about and insult people who have different beliefs than them. What happens when you have a passion for orthopraxy, the right practices, the right behaviors, but don't have a priority of love to go with that? You get legalism, the behavior police, Christians who make it their mission to tell other people what they should or shouldn't do without any grace or humility. And you get a lot of gossip, an awful lot of gossip. Because if there's one thing I know, it's that most people who emphasize behavior over love, love to tell other people about someone else's behavior. There's something else you should know about these people, these difficult people in the church in Ephesus that Timothy needs to confront. And it flows naturally from what these people were not doing. Remember, they don't have the love that comes from a pure heart. They don't have good motives from a clear conscience. They aren't operating out of a sincere faith. And that last one is very interesting to me. What does Paul mean they're not operating out of a sincere faith? And I wanna try to explain it this way. Remember that these are people who are engaged in lots of conversations that Paul calls meaningless, fruitless, no value conversations, wasting people's time and sucking other people into them. When you start with love, your motivation in conversations isn't to argue another Christian into agreeing with your position. Your motive is to demonstrate love and grace while explaining what you believe to be true. And you may have to agree to disagree on something and be okay with that. When you start with love, your goal isn't to walk out of the room having destroyed the other Christian's argument. Your goal is to present the truth as best as you can, and here's the key, allow the Holy Spirit to work. And this is so important, don't miss this. Do not think that it falls entirely on you to change someone else's mind. Leave some room for the Holy Spirit to work. Have a little faith in God. See, I'm convinced of this. When we become obsessed with an issue to the point of arguing and causing division, it says more about our lack of faith in God than it does about our commitment to right belief and right practice. When we become obsessed with an issue to the point of arguing and causing division, it says more about our lack of faith in God than it does our commitment to right belief and right practice. Now, it may feel very religious. It may feel very spiritual even to gossip about these things. People who don't do or think the way we think they should. But these actions actually come from a lack of sincere faith in God. And that's the other thing you need to know about these people. 
Their faith was not so much in God as it was in themselves. And that's why Paul says in the very next verse, verse 7, they want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they speak so confidently. See, they thought they had it all figured out. And their confidence and their arrogance made them blind to seeing how wrong they were. So the question for you and I is this. How do we avoid that trap? How do we keep from being like the people that Timothy needed to go confront in the church? Three things. First, start with love. Start with love. Make love your first priority. Not convincing others to agree with your particular views. Talk about them, yes, but respectfully share what you believe, but start with love. Number two, check your motives. Why are you engaging in this conversation? Is it to win an argument? Is it to convince someone that you are right? Or is it to build up and encourage a brother or sister in Christ? One of my mentors a long time ago was the most unlikely mentor imaginable to me. We got paired up together. It was not our choosing. And I was, I was very young, but I had formed very strong theological beliefs. And our theological beliefs on a particular spectrum could not have been more different from each other. And other than believing in the gospel of Jesus, there, was, there wasn't a lot more that we agreed on. And yet this was the guy that I had to meet with for a year for mentoring and accountability. I learned something through that process. We had amazing conversations both of us very gracious to the other. We talked about the things we disagreed on. We talked about the things we agreed on. We talked about living a life of faith in God. We were transparent with each other when living a life of faith in God meant something a little bit different for him application-wise than it did for me application-wise because of our theological differences. And yet, there was always, always, without exception, a spirit of unity and love because both of us were very intentional about that. Our goal was to encourage each other and build each other up, understanding that we had these different views. And I learned for the very first time that you could have that kind of relationship with someone that you very strongly disagree with, and yet you can still have love and unity. But you have to check your motives, and you have to start with love. And finally, you need to act in faith. It is way too easy to forget that we are co-laborers with God. You are not in this alone. We are co-laborers with God, and he's the principal partner in that relationship, isn't he? The heavy lifting is on him. Why do we take so much responsibility on ourselves to convince people? It just shows that our faith is in us and not in God. So yes, talk about your views, talk about your differences, but don't think that it's your job to convince people that you're right. Pray and ask God to do his work. In fact, ask him to even reveal where maybe in you there needs to be a change of perspective. Approach it with humility, not with trying to convince someone that you are right. Leave room for God to do his work. Start with love, check your motives, and then act in faith and let God work. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is so powerful and you teach us so much that we need to hear and understand today. I know that there are probably people in this room and people watching online right now 
who need to hear this because they're headed down the path that would lead to the kinds of confrontation that, that Timothy had to deal with. Lord, help us to avoid those traps. God, steer us away from those things that we are in, in, at risk of becoming so obsessed with that they take us away from the things you want us to be focused on. Help us to be united around the main things, the things that really matter. Lord, help us to start with love, to make that our priority as it was for Paul. As he wanted to communicate to Timothy, Lord, help us to have pure motives and help us to act in faith, understanding that it is you who will change hearts and you who will change minds and you who will impress upon them. And we just need to be faithful witnesses and servants. Lord, help us to maintain a spirit of love and unity throughout this entire year as we talk about some challenging topics. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.